start reading in verse number one, the verses that Joseph preached for us last week. We're going to go through verse 11. We will uh, focus on verses three through nine for today. Second Peter chapter one. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, I pray that you would bless this reading of your word. May we keep it in our hearts. May we open our our minds and hearts to the preaching of your word now. I pray, Father, that you would work in my heart now, in my mind, the things that you would not have me say. I pray that you would help me clear those out for that which needs to come to mind to be said. I pray that you would help me to remember those, that everything that's said and done here in this message would glorify you, that the truth of this passage, the the deep, perhaps complicated truth, but the, the, the blessing of understanding what you have given to us, what you require of us, and the consequences of our obedience, that they would not be a burden, but that they would be a joyful blessing as we look forward to however many days you have us walk here on earth, that we would be ever increasing in our faith and drawing closer to you. I pray, Father, that this would be an encouraging message and that you would help me to be an encouragement to these folks here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what is a paradox? A paradox. Uh, two structures jutting out from the land into a body of water, frequently used for mooring boats. A pair of docks. Sorry. It's, um, Joseph comes to these messages with a, a very meaningful historical opening. I struggle with those, and so I go to my strength, which is humor that makes people groan. But a paradox, 
it's it's uh, things that is when we bring the word paradox to scripture what i present to you today may be apparently a paradox they things in scripture that seem to be contradictory we may learn to accept them as truth but even though we may not fully understand it for example that a holy creator god would give his most precious son to die on behalf of a hostile defiant running away from god creation man that's contradictory that we should forgive our enemies and that we should love them that's contradictory that we should love the unlovely that we should not render evil when evil is done unto us that's contradictory that god elects people to salvation but he also wants us to preach the gospel to them in order to reach them that's contradictory now if you go to the dictionary or if you type define paradox into google that's the modern day dictionary it's actually a statement or a construct that appears to be ridiculously absurd at first but when thoroughly investigated and analyzed may prove to be well founded and true today we're going to be faced with an apparent contradic- contradiction but i believe and i hope that you'll believe at the end of the message that you'll see that this is that dictionary definition of paradox which is an apparent contradiction but when it's analyzed it's well founded and true god's speaking to us in this book of second peter in this letter the second letter that peter has written is calling us to something that is well founded and true so peter jumps right in after his introduction after his greeting he jumps right to the main message of the letter that being that the key to our growth in our faith is knowledge of god the key to our growth in our faith is knowledge of god but it's not just book learning it's not just an intellectual apprehension or a fact memorizing knowledge and those of you that are in school you know that's one way to get through school is just to memorize stuff but to really master things this is what the tests are for they start to test how you can take your knowledge and put it in useful ways this is a multifaceted message that may seem paradoxical through our eyes of human logic but let's look at it together um we'll, we'll start in verses 3 and 4 as our first chunk that first point everything that we need what god has supplied and i'm paralyzed by technical difficulties all right i'm turning it off and turning it back on okay so everything we need his divine power has granted us to to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises this is what is known in most books as a run-on sentence this is difficult to understand fortunately i have been a friend of a man who has mastered sentence diagramming He's sitting on the the second row, Chris Merkel. Um Chris will groan as I go to my next slide because I did not diagram it properly, but I did break it up into these chunks and I want us to reread it again. So the power that comes from God, his divine power has granted to us or given to us all things that are needed for life and godliness. This power comes through knowledge of he or him who called us. by his own glory and his own moral virtue and excellence through this calling he has granted precious and very great promises so i hope this helps us understand a little more about what's being said in verses 3 and 4 and i'll keep this on the on the 
on the screen for a little bit. First of all, that power, that divine power, this is power for everything that's needed to live a life of godliness. This power, I mean, for those of you who have, have studied the scriptures for some time, you know that Greek word for power is the same root word that we have for dynamite. It's, it's power, it's dynamite-like like power. It's all that we need to empower us to live eternally, ever-increasing in godliness. In, in Romans 1.16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Earlier in Romans 1, Christ is referred to as the Son of God in power. What power is this? I can keep saying the word, but what does it mean? This is power is the same power that Christ has to conquer death. This power is the same power that Christ has to reclaim lost sinners, to overcome the curse of sin. This power is provided to us before what purpose? So it's provided to us for life and godliness. And let's look at the, these words that are coupled together. The word life denotes a, a meaning of life, a real and genuine, active and vigorous life devoted to God in the portion, even in this world, of those who put their trust in God. But after the resurrection, to be consummated by new accessions, among them a more perfect body, and to last forever. So this is eternal life. It's a life that starts now and ends never. This is the life that, that we are being given the power to live. What type of life is it? Let's look at the second pair of that. Life and godliness. The word for godliness is literally good worship. It's also translated as piety, not a word we use that often in a, in a positive sense, but piety. It summarizes the behavior that's expected of Christians who have come to know God. So we are being given the power to live an eternal life, ever increasing in godliness, in good worship. God has made available to us all that we require. I'm going to keep saying that because that's the main point of this first first section, that we have been given everything we need to live a life of godliness. Also, those words, life and godliness, are interesting. Um, one perspective is that life is an internal concept. We, um, God grants us eternal life that begins at the point of conversion and rejuvenation. That's inside us. Godliness, virtue, is something that is seen externally. It's a manifestation of that internal life. If it's not a manifestation, if it doesn't come from within, it's just acting, isn't it? Isn't it just pretending to be alive? Um, if I were to pepper my language with hip-hop terms and go to Nathaniel's store and buy a bunch of skater clothes, that would not make me cool. It would make me someone to be pitied. Um, it, it does not come from within. I am not a skater. I don't even know if that's the term. I am not that sort of person. I can try to be. No one here wants to see that. But life is given to us and it's internal. The godliness that comes from that internal life, from that internal change, that rejuvenation is a changed life. Now, there's a specific conduit. If we look at that next section, through the knowledge of him who calls us to his glory and excellence. Here in verse 3, we see that first word, knowledge. Now, we saw it back in verses 1 and 2, but I'm comparing verse 3 to um, verse 5. In verse 3, knowledge here means a precise and accurate understanding of God. 
a precise and accurate. We could call this a theological knowledge of God. And here's a preview in verse 5. It's a different word for knowledge. It's more of an experiential, practical knowledge. It, it denotes knowing someone intimately. So you see how there's both head knowledge and heart knowledge. There's book smarts and street smarts. You know, we, we have common in our society this, this concept of you can know something, but you don't really know it. You can know someone, but you don't really know them. Here in this passage that we are studying today, we see both um, that we, need, we grow through knowledge of him who called us. And then we are in verse five to add knowledge to our faith. Going on to the next pair of words, glory and excellence. Um, John MacArthur points out that th- this can be seen as parallel, just like what did I say about life and godliness? Life is internal. Godliness is external. This glory here describes God's majestic presence. It's who he is. And his excellence is what we see him do. It's translated as virtue, his moral excellence, his goodness. These are the external characteristics of God. Sum all that to mean that God has provided what we need internally to live godly externally because he has called us with his own majestic presence seen in his virtuous good excellence. I'm very thankful that Josh read those verses and talked a bit about the precious and very great promises that have been granted to us uh, by God. Those promises are perhaps one of the keys to understanding and remembering the knowledge and growing in that knowledge of him who called us to go through scripture and see the promises made to us to go start and, and, and see God's faithfulness to his people like Abraham to see in and Jeremiah, how God promises to give us a new heart to write his law and, and establish that new covenant with us. The promises of God are very meaningful and are key to understanding who he is. But I want to look to verse 4. The partakers of the divine nature. What is the result of the power through the knowledge and the calling? What, what is the result of this power Where is it taking us? And verse 4 has a very meaningful statement that can also be very interpreted in different ways. So that through them, so that through those promises, through that calling, through the growing knowledge, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What does this mean? Partakers of the divine nature. What it does not mean is that we will become God. When we become a believer, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we do not become incapable of sinning. We are not given an entirely new nature that, that um, is put in place in place of our old nature. We continue to be tempted by sin. We all too often choose to sin. We are touched sometimes deeply by the consequences of sin. And we recognize, as we have often stated, that this world is broken. The the people in this church are broken. And many times we are broken and hurt because of sin, either in our lives or around us. We do not have a divine nature, but we are participating in the divine nature. We share in God's holy character. And what is that character that we share in? Elsewhere in Scripture, we can catch hints of this. The partakers of the divine nature... Uh, reading in um, Ephesians 4.24, and to put on the new self, 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Hebrews chapter 12, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, he being God, that we may share his holiness. We share in God's holy character. And what that means to us as partakers of the divine nature, it's not just an intellectual thing. What that means to us is that we can become, start to become, even while we're in this world, free, intermittently, free in a growing manner from that enslaving power of sin, that moral corruption of our broken world. Are there not things in your life, believers, are there things in your life that are no longer as enjoyable as they were before you became a Christian? Now, let me draw a, um, a name analogy. analogy. Um, I probably, I feel like recently I mentioned, like I used to be able to pound a big gulp of Mountain Dew. I can't do that anymore. I don't even know if it would be pleasurable, but it was something I took great pleasure in. Um, I'm not saying drinking Mountain Dew is a sin. I just think it's a bad idea. But for, for the believer, aren't there things that we used to enjoy that we are no longer able to partake in as God is transforming our hearts, as the Holy Spirit is speaking to us of how that grieves God, how that is not good for our growth? Are there passions or attitudes, perhaps before you were a believer, you were an angry person, and then God is transforming you little by little to become more like His Son? We will someday be free of this desire to sin. And we can become, be, start now. We can begin now to partake in this divine nature. The nature of God is to be holy. And he says in, in the previous book the, that we studied earlier um, in 2014, First Peter 1, look at the verse 15. That is, he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What we have now in this life, while we're walking here on earth, we have glimpses, we have portions of our life where God allows us and helps us and empowers us to have victory over sin. These are partaking in the divine nature. When we get to heaven, we've said this before from this pulpit, one of the most wonderful things about heaven will not just be seeing people who have gone before It will be seeing our Savior. But one of the blessings that comes from a transformed body is not going to be a body that doesn't hurt, a body that um, doesn't um, have weaknesses, a body that's free from sickness, although that will be great. What will happen is our nature where we will no longer be tempted by sin, that will be one of the greatest blessings that will be in our life because our walk here is plagued with a struggle to sin. Or not to sin. And this, this divine nature that we're partaking in now is a blessing that God gives to us with his divine power that grows through the knowledge of him who called us. So after describing the result of that power, which is partaking in the divine nature, Peter intensifies his message in verse number 5. So let's turn to verse number 5. <coughs> Verse 
And let's read, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For this very reason, obviously that points back to verse 4. It points back to the fact that we have become partakers of the divine nature. Because of this, this is so very strong that Peter is just jumping in and hammering it. Because of this reason, make every effort. Don't drift into this. Don't just meander your way into this. Make every effort. You're not going to be able to accomplish this without action. You're not going to be able to accomplish this supplementing of your faith by standing still and being passive. Make every effort. When I read this, the image popped to the mind. Um, so my daughter, Kendall, was able to run in the cross-country team this fall, and so I attended races, and I'd never been part of cross-country. So these runners run a, a five-kilometer race. They're taught, and they, or they learn, to pace themselves as they go. And, but as they come in what we all know is the home stretch, they put forth every effort. They're taught, leave nothing on the course. Leave no energy there. Expend it. Be able to finish the race, but expend it. And I took this picture in September of a race, and um, uh, the intensity of these runners just struck me. Um, the, the, the young man in green is a, is a teammate of Kendall's, but he, throughout, I learned throughout the season, the home stretch was his place. After I took this picture, his head went back, and he started yelling with intensity as he was running may not be the best technique to expend oxygen, but his very fiber of his being was being put forth. You can see even the other runners, the runner from Liberty, the kid next to um, uh, the one in green, he's like completely off the ground. These guys are coming. They have about 100 meters left before the end. They are putting forth every effort. And I believe this is what Peter's calling us to do. Put forth this type of effort in our supplement of our faith. Put forth this type of effort. Now, we may begin to start feeling some cognitive dissonance here. You know, we just finished saying, you, you have everything. I've given you the power to, do, to live in godliness. And then Peter follows that up with, but make every effort for that very reason. So we'll, we'll continue to build the paradox, and then we'll, we'll address it. Make every effort. What does that mean? You know, that image came to mind that those guys were making every effort. But that, that word means a zeal, an earnestness. This is not a, a hobby. This is not something that is pursued when there's time. There's diligent haste in making every effort. This is a, a very plain, I believe, explanation of the attitude that we are to undertake into the following command, the coming imperative, which is to build upon our faith. Um, if you're a football fan, if you're a sports fan at all, you know there's a list of banned substances. If you're an Oregon fan, you really know there's a banned substance that is affecting your team. But on the opposite of that, this is like a list of supplements that we not only should add, but that we must add. We also need to add these to our faith. And, and notice that while Peter in his writing, you could view it as like a staircase of supplements, like start with faith. And after you've, you've taken all your faith, then add virtue. And after you've completed the virtue supplements, then go on to knowledge. 
I think a careful examination shows this is not the case. This is not a finished one and do the other. This is like add all these supplements, take them all at the same time. And to continue with that football analogy, football players uh, in particular, they're not taught as they're growing up, okay, this, I want you to work on your strength. You're going to do nothing but lift weights. We're not going to worry about running. We're not going to worry about agility. We're not going to worry about stamina. We're just going to build your upper body strength. No, football players are, are taught to, to increase their progress, their capabilities in all these areas of agility. They have exercises that help them with strength. They have exercises that help them with the quick t- twitch muscles, with their bulk muscles that they'll, they'll need. All these things are, are worked on at the same time. And that same mentality is how we are to approach these supplements to our faith. I want to move through these and, and talk through about each one and maybe for, provide some other words that may, may help us un, um, for these to take hold. But these eight things are also not the comprehensive list. Like if you only add these, then you're good. These are the things that Peter sought to see the, the readers of his letter to grow in. But it starts with faith, and appropriately this list does end with love. The, the faith mentioned here is the same as verse 1. The faith in verse 1 obtained by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Without faith, we cannot be reconciled to God. Without faith, as Josh said, we do not receive the promises and believe in them. This faith is the faith necessary to be saved. To see our need of a Savior, to see that you're a person that needs a Savior, is indeed a gift from God. Because I believe we can go through this life believing that we're okay, not recognizing perhaps the danger that we're in. And to see that we have a need of a Savior, and then when God gives us that faith to believe in Him, that is a true foundational gift. But to this gift of faith, we are to add virtue. I've alluded to this earlier when we talked about um, God's goodness. This same word is translated moral goodness or moral excellence. We also need to add goodness and godliness to our faith. The next word is knowledge, a prominent theme in this book. I, I already gave you the preview that this knowledge is not just a theological knowledge of God's character, but instead a supplement of the knowledge that connotes wisdom, practical wisdom, as seen in right living. Self-control, also translated as temperance. This is mastering, getting under control our desires, our passions, our emotions. This is why I believe that a believer can't just say to his friends, look, I'm an angry guy. You're just going to have to know that I blow up sometimes. Parentheses, you guys deal with it. And then I'll calm down. That is not growing in godliness to let other people know this is just what you have to deal with. It may be overly uh, overly emotional, overly fearful. Whatever your passion or your desires are, each of us have a, a propensity that we have to examine and put before God as to whether this is something that he wants to work with us on. I don't, I don't believe we are called just to wallow in whatever emotional personality or lack of emotional personality that we've been given. But we are to have self-control and not be a slave to our passions. Steadfastness, also translated as patience, sustaining, perseverance. This is something that many of us need to grow in. If we're prone to 
start something than quit. If we're prone to be in a relationship and it goes sideways a little bit, are we prone to run or to persevere? If we're attacked by the enemy as we are seeking to advance the gospel in someone's life or in this church, is our tendency, our first reaction to be, I knew it wasn't going to work out, we should just fold up? Steadfastness, perseverance. Godliness, again, translated as good worship. Same as verse 3. This is reverence and respect. This is uh, growing in piety. Those final two words go together. And if you, most of us, our our knowledge of Greek might be limited to these words of um, brotherly affection, phileo. I'm probably even mispronouncing that. And then love, agape. These go together. Brotherly affection would be friendship. Uh, the, the love you would have for a friend, friendship between Christians. Agape goes even deeper, a godly affection. I would just tell you that when I read these words and, and see these as things that we're supposed to grow in, this is my heart's desires for this church body to be characterized by love one for another. I know that when people visit, as God brings them into our path, they may come and hear a message. But I believe that just like the Scripture says, just like our Savior says, they'll know that you are my disciples because of the love you have for one another. Our love for one another and our love for the people around us in our community should characterize our church more than just a great music or a great preaching or a novel meeting time. Our love for one another should be what characterizes a, a healthy church body and a healthy Christian. These supplements are what we are to make every effort to add to our faith. We're to supplement our faith with these godly qualities, not in a stepwise fashion, but pursuing all of these. So here we come to the paradox. I'm using words like effort. I show the picture of the runners. I use words like supplement and pursue. But how does Peter's emphasis on our own effort in verse 5 fit with the overall New Testament emphasis of the Spirit being the one who sanctifies us. And this is the main or perhaps sole point that if you remember one thing today, I want you to focus on these next few minutes. Isn't our sanctification something that God does in us by, our, by His Spirit? How is our effort to be seen as crucial? Now this paradox is not a new question, if that's helpful at all. We're not the first group of Christians to look at these verses and say, you know, how do these go together? Um, actually, more frequently, we'll see a passage here that talks about God working in us. And then we'll see another passage, and I'll show you in a minute, just right next to each other, you are to work out your own salvation. So the paradox has two points. One, God does provide us power to grow in faith and godliness through the Spirit's working in us as He indwells every believer. That's really small. Um, so Romans, if you go to Romans 8 and you go to Philippians 2, I've chosen two passages that contrast each other. On the left side, in the kind of gold text, I've emphasized the first part, which is that God is the one that works in us. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So that verse opens with God has done this, what we could not do. And God requires us to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Philippians 2.13 at the bottom of that left side. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, if you focus just on the just on the left side of the screen to only emphasize those verses without considering others is theologically incorrect. There's a couple common errors that can happen if we only focus on God doing the work. Number one, it can lead to a passive approach of becoming holy. Let go and let God is a familiar and off-spoken slogan for those who might see their role, their only role as resting on this partial truth. This can be a common trap for believers today and in Peter's time. It can lead to a lackadaisical attitude that towards our pursuit of godliness that presumes upon God's grace. You know, we, we throw that phrase around sometimes. We're presuming upon God's grace. I, I think... In our language, it's almost like taking it for granted. If you presume upon someone's hospitality, you're taking it for granted. You're taking advantage of it. We would presume upon God's grace if we do not pursue godliness. We can become satisfied. There may be people here who can become satisfied with just being saved. After all, that's the most important thing is to make sure your eternal destination is, is uh, settled, isn't it? So maybe just being saved is enough. This attitude of being overly passive can be manifested with a lack of spiritual growth, interest, a lack of fruit, studying God's word, loving God's word, fellowshipping with other believers. In my mind, I, I see as an opposite to that cross-country homestretch. I see this, this picture of drifting. And um, back when I grew up in Louisiana... There was a pastime, it's not a sport, but you go down to the river, you get a big black inner tube, you take it into the river, and then you float for like five hours, four or five hours, and, and there's a bus service that drops you off and then picks you up. Um, there, maybe there wasn't much to do in Louisiana, but that's, it, it's something I did in high school and junior high, and it was fun. I mean, you're in a river, there's some points in the river where you're like just so shallow that you have to get up and walk. Um, you look forward to branches because they make rapids. Um, it's, it's drifting. There's no effort. And, but that is not the call that we have. Drifting. We're not going to drift towards holiness. We're going to drift away from that. So one common error is this very passive approach. Another common error could be a libertine approach to Christian living. Another manifestation of the skewed view of just focusing only on the left side of the screen is the attitude perhaps summed up. If God has saved me from sin and if I'm righteous before him, there's nothing I can do to earn his condemnation. If God has saved me from sin and I'm righteous before him, I'm justified. There's nothing I can do to earn his condemnation. While that is theologically true, it's not the complete story and, and Peter was combating false teachers who were teaching this, like that we can adopt an ungodly lifestyle. We can pursue an improper liberty. The French philosopher Voltaire once said, God will forgive 
That's his job. As if it doesn't matter how I live. I know God's a God of forgiveness. He'll forgive everyone at the end time. I mean, that's stated in our time by religious leaders such as Rob Bell, that there's just a a universal forgiveness that's going to come to all men. Each sin can be seen as just another opportunity for God's grace to be seen. But Paul countered that when he said, Shall we sin more that grace may abound? This is a common error that can come when we don't look for the entire truth of this paradox. So this first part is the left side of the screen, that God indeed does give us everything we need to live in faith and godliness. But what's the second part? It comes in verse 5, making every effort. Simultaneously, believers are required to pursue holiness, and we are to expend effort in doing so. We read earlier from 1 Peter 1, where it says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. But looking on this side of the screen, and notice that these are in the same area, Romans 8, 3, and 4, and then Romans 8, 12 to 13, Philippians 2, 13, Philippians 2, 12. The key words in Romans 8, 12 to 13, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. There's an action that's, that's taken with the Spirit's help. We are putting to death. We're actively putting off the deeds of the body. In Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So this provides more of the whole picture, especially those verses in Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you. But to only emphasize this part of the screen, to only emphasize I have to work hard, I have to do these things, can lead to the opposite of libertine living, that being legalism. I still like the definition of legalism as being any behavior Attitude or action that's done with the motivation of earning God's saving favor. This can come in the form of someone who cannot understand how God's grace saves us and say, there must be more. God sent his son to die for me and pay the penalty for my sins so that I could be redeemed to him. That can't, it's too good to be true. I mean, we've all learned that when, when people call us or send us spam email. It's too good to be true. You can't stay at home and work two hours a day and make a bunch of money. It can come after salvation in the way we view God. Like, thank you, God, for your gift of grace and for saving me. But I'm going to earn it. I'm going to show you that you made a good choice. In choosing me. Um, I'm going to get as close to that line of you probably would have chosen me because I'm good enough as I can possibly be for any human being that you've ever chosen. We can do good things with the wrong motive. We can live godly lives and, and look like we're doing, um, pursuing godliness and holiness with the wrong attitude. And alternate related interpretation of our responsibility if we're making every effort is to say that if we go out and we discipline ourselves if we go out and we do these things if we work hard if we take orders from the holy spirit if we we will automatically be holy and sometimes this manifests itself in the way we bring up our children we we may say there's a formula to raising good kids if you do these things in your family your kids will be good. If you do these things, new Christian, 
you know, my, my friend who just became a Christian, if you do these things, you know, this is the path to success. Again, we're, we're presuming upon God's grace. We're taking away from his glory by taking him out of the equation. Like, thanks, God, I got my passport to heaven. I'll take care of the rest from here. Instead of these two extremes, the extreme of just being passive or the extreme of I don't need God, but I can work my way to heaven, I believe there's a balanced approach that we need to understand this theology of growth. It must be simultaneously our identity to live power-filled, spirit-empowered lives of godliness and at the same time be zealous athletes pressing forward to progress in our spiritual disciplines. One illustration I thought of that may help us understand this dichotomy, this paradox. Uh, for those of us here who are married, it's, it's, we, I don't believe anyone here views marriage as like every day a husband, this mythical husband gets up and says, today I'm going to earn this marriage. Today I'm going to uh, earn, I'm going to stay married today because of what I do. Um, no, instead, a more healthy approach would be for a husband, maybe not to say it, but to have this attitude, I'm going to walk worthy of this marriage today. What I do that day does not make me married. That was taken care of in the past. But I'm going to walk worthy of that. And this terminology, walk worthy, should be familiar because we don't earn our salvation. But we walk worthy of that calling. Paul urges us in Ephesians 4 to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we receive grace and we are to embrace the means of grace that God uses in our lives to build godliness. We've been given everything we need for eternal life. We are to zealously, passionately make every effort to grow. This is God's calling to us. And in these final verses, verses 8 and 9, we see that the, re- the result that God says will come. Verses 8 and 9, these qualities, looking back at the list of supplements, these qualities belong to every believer and we're to increase in them. But what happens if we follow this, if these qualities, if these supplements are added to our faith and we're growing in our faith? So it helps me to flip it to the positive language. The result is that we will be effective. The result is that we will be fruitful. And the result is that we will see our state before God clearly, that last clause, that we have been cleansed from our former sins. Earlier I talked about head knowledge and heart knowledge. I talked about a book learning and, and then effective knowledge. What is effective knowledge? You know, if these qualities are ours and they're increasing, they keep us from being ineffective. What's effective knowledge? If I go back to this marriage analogy that I just mentioned, I don't get up every day and, and open a book about my wife and say, okay, today's reading... Um, Lisa's favorite color is, and I actually asked her this morning, and I don't, she has multiple favorite colors, but, um, oh, today I learned that Lisa has multiple favorite colors. Okay, I'm going to keep that. That's my reading about Lisa today. And then tomorrow I'm going to open and say Lisa's favorite food is blank. This is, this is, um, 
book knowledge about my wife. But that's not knowing my wife, right? Guys, if you just have a bunch of facts about your wife, I say, tell me about your wife. And you say, she is 5'6". She has brown hair. You know, this, this is like, dude, do you know your wife or did you like pick her out of a catalog? Um, to intimate knowledge is effective knowledge. And, and when, I, when I thought of this illustration, I immediately thought, if we read the Bible to learn more facts about God, that's not effective knowledge. If we read the Bible to know more of God's character, who he is as a person in our lives, who he is as the, the, our creator, that's effective knowledge. If we increase in this list of supplements, we will be effective. There will be fruit. And this isn't fruit stapling. This isn't like taking apples and taking a staple gun and stapling them to a tree and saying, hey, look, an apple tree. But instead, this is fruit that comes from inside, born of the holiness and godliness that God is growing within us. That divine nature of shunning sin, letting it become more distasteful to us as we know God better, this relationship is what makes us effective and fruitful. I do have to say that if we do not bear fruit, though, our salvation may not be real. If these qualities are not ours and we are unfruitful, we may be deceiving ourselves. And I say this not to cause anxiety for the one who might be plagued by Satan's hissing voice that maybe you're not saved. To that person, I would say clearly and strongly that the very fact that you feel angst regarding your place before God and your relationship with him is indeed an indicator that God has given you the faith to see that you need a savior. Instead, I'm speaking to those among us who might be self-righteous, intellectually accepting the fact that there's a God, intellectually accepting the fact that there is an afterlife. And yes, eternal destination in heaven is probably better than hell. And so I'll sign up. In that life of that person who's intellectually accepting that Jesus exists and, is, is, and, and there's some sort of salvation needed, I would dare say that many times you will not see fruit in their life. These supplements won't be added, at least not in a permanent way if that comes from within. We can all act under self-control for a while. We can all be patient. We can all be nice to people for a while. But it will not be true. It will not be rooted in a change from within. And in and, and John's epistles, he warns us, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. A solemn admonition that we also see. In, in verse 9 of, of our passage in Peter, He talks about lack of these qualities, lack of this list of supplements to our faith. We can become nearsighted, willfully blind, because we get spiritual amnesia. Now, spiritual amnesia can be a good thing. If you're a a Christian who struggles with condemnation, like if if you have sinned and, and that sin enslaved you perhaps for a time or it still comes to mind and you're like, how can God forgive that which I did? How can God forgive 
I mean, that was so bad. Or what I did to that person, what I've done in my life, you don't know. Spiritual amnesia can be a good thing. God can say there's no condemnation for that. It's forgiven. But we can sabotage. This is a different spiritual amnesia that's spoken of here in verse 9. We can sabotage our own growth in our knowledge by forgetting that we are cleansed from sin. It's a willful blindness. If we choose to focus on the fact that we are sinful and that there's no way we're going to grow in holiness, we, we sabotage ourselves. So the point is that we are indeed to remember our state before God, that we're no longer enslaved to that sin. Therefore, we can gain self-control. Therefore, we can have perseverance in our faith and we can love the unlovely. Now, I can go back and forth in my head because I'm thinking, which comes first? The knowledge, you know, the power that comes with knowledge or the effort. God calls me to trust and obey his commands. You know, Peter himself has stacked the, these themes. If you still have your Bible open to Second Peter 1, you can let your eyes go through 3 through 11. Peter says, look, it's, you, know, you have everything you need, verses 3 and 4. And then he says, and you make every effort. And then he says, these godly qualities will keep you effective. And then he says, but make every effort to not forget that you've been cleansed from sin. He kind of goes back and forth on God's doing this and you do this and God's doing this and you do this. Which comes first? It's a combination of the two that we need to trust God and also obey him. It's it's 2015 now. More wisdom like that will come from me as I speak. It's 2015. Um, 30 years ago, uh, 1984, uh, it's hard to believe in 30 years, a movie came out called Karate Kid. And uh, those of you who are my age, I mean, you remember it. As Mr. Miyagi befriended Daniel-san, he told him that he would train him for the All-Valley Karate Tournament. I mean, if you if you haven't seen it, go you know, figure out how you can still see this 30-year-old movie. But um, he would train him so that he wouldn't get beat up anymore. And then when Daniel came for the training... He was instead given tasks to paint the fence, wax the car, sand the deck. Daniel obeyed, but he had a growing distrust of his sensei. But in the end, he grew in his knowledge of karate, even to the point where, remember, Mr. Miyagi said, karate not here, karate not here, but karate here. You know, it's in the heart. So the bottom line, I mean, I'm looking, there's, you got Joseph appreciates Karate Kid. When I brought this up at the sermon review, he started yelling lines, which were not helpful, so please don't do that now. But Daniel LaRusso had the heart within him to be a karate champion, but he had to work at it. And the discipline and the teaching that were imposed on him was not something he understood at the time. He had to trust and obey his teacher. Now, obviously, this isn't a perfect illustration, but... For those of you who remember, he was waxing the car and he was learning a karate move. He was painting the fence and he was learning another defense move. He was standing the deck and that would defend him against kicks. Perhaps these efforts of wax on, wax off, you know, as we have conversations, we're helping each other grow. That can be our words for are you growing in self-control. Paint the fence can be are you growing in love for one another. Sand the deck growing in virtue and godliness. It's a flawed illustration, 
But my point is that we don't see everything that God is working in our lives. But He's giving us the power within, through His Spirit, growing in knowledge of Him, to transform our lives to become more godly. There is a dangerous but attractive approach in the Christian life that can treat our failure to obey God's law as a virtue. And that's something I, I want to close with. It can be a growing theme as we become more aware of God's work in our lives, the, the verses 3 and 4 of this passage. We can see every sin as an opportunity for grace only, instead of seeing it as, as grieving God. While that is true, that's only part of the picture. Our sin hurts our growing sanctification. Our sin does not make us condemned, but it's like stopping in that home stretch of the race to eat a dozen donuts. That's not making every effort to just say, hey, I'm going to sin. I might as well not try not to sin. It's just going to happen. That would be like a child telling you as a parent, I disobey you because I know that we have sweet fellowship when we reconcile. When I repent and I'm punished, and I ask forgiveness, and you give me forgiveness, that is some sweet time we have, Mom. So I'm going to disobey you so we can experience that forgiveness. While that may be the path for biblical repentance in our families, in our relationships, we're not to pursue that as a means of presuming upon God's grace. A blind overemphasis of grace leads to license and passivity and a drifting pursuit of holiness a blind pick yourself up by the bootstraps emphasis on becoming more godly through human strength leads only to the madness and the sadness of legalism so which is it which comes first to make every effort or that god has given us everything we're called to both we trust in the power of the knowledge of god and we obey his call to zealously pursue his holiness That's the paradox that we've been called to. And it's a blessing. It's not something that we can fully understand, perhaps. But this is the life that we're called to. And God promises us great and rich blessings as we pursue Him. Our Father, we pray that um, these words, which no doubt have been flawed in presenting these truths from Your Word, would uh, that You would put Your Spirit with them, behind them, that the truth of Your Word would transcend um, the, the message, that the things that need to take root in our hearts, perhaps something different for each person here, that You would work and You would speak. There may be those here who do not even understand the, 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 this terminology of growing in, the <clears throat> growing in knowledge of You who called us in the and the great promises that have been given. (coughs) For that one, I pray, Father, that You would give that gift of faith to see their need of a Savior. For those of us who are walking, seeking to follow You, pray that You would help us to, to look beyond slogans and and short. Twitter summaries of, of great truths and see what, what you have for us in your word. To see the full picture of your grace and your call to holiness. May that uh, give us hope. 
not a burden, but, but a, a joyful uh, pursuit of holiness, knowing that, that growing in that intimate knowledge of you will bring us the greatest fulfillment. And we look forward to that day, Father, when we're not just partaking in the divine nature, but we are with you, we are like you, and we no longer struggle with sin. I pray for each of us that our struggle with sin would be something that we simultaneously give to you and ask you to work in us, in our lives, to, to become more and more free from sin each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.